Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Christ. As we think about these words, we pray that you'll teach us more of the truth of how important it is for us to believe in the very fact of his death and his shed blood on our behalf. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the argument of the Apostle continues in describing the necessity of understanding the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is predicting the coming of Christ, and the New Testament is explaining the fulfillment of that. The Old Testament has types and figures and metaphors, examples of Christ yet to come, and then the New Testament, the apostles explain how those figures and those types were fulfilled in Christ, were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. The Old Testament had physical and earthly images but the New Testament explains that the physical and earthly images have their fulfillment in the eternal and heavenly realities of Christ. So, the whole Bible is about Christ, either in illustrations or in fulfillment. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, more specifically, with the rituals of the Old Testament, what was going on, or what was the example, or what was the illustration with the blood of the animals? We have to ask that question. Was the blood of the animals saving the people from their sins? Or was it an example, or was it a type? Was it showing a way that they needed to believe in Christ? That they needed to come to faith in the coming death of Christ, the coming shed blood of Christ? Well, the people would have said, the people would have thought, if they misunderstood, they would have thought, no, no, we are saved by the death of the animals. We are saved by that. We're saved by those blood sacrifices of the animals because we need to do good deeds, we need to do whatever God said, and then we'll be saved by doing those good deeds. This would have been a common mentality among the people. And we should not look down on them in a sense because that's the way we are. We think that if we do certain good deeds, we'll get to heaven. If we're just good enough, if we just keep ourselves away from some of the major sins, then we'll get to heaven 
and God will open the door wide in heaven for us. That's the way we think. It's a human problem. It's a human and uh, a problem throughout the ages. All people think that if they just do a little good here or a little good there or avoid some major evils, they'll get to heaven. That's the way we think. Not only the Jews of old, but the Jews of today. Not only the Gentiles of old, but the Gentiles of today. We all think that way. So, he has to explain here the proper understanding of the covenants and the blood in relationship to the covenants. Why did God establish covenants? Why did he establish the Mosaic covenant? Why have the law of Moses with its elaborate rituals, furnitures, and procedures day by day that they needed to conduct and that they needed to obey? Why was all of that in place? And then, why did Jeremiah introduce the new covenant? Remember chapter 8. Why did Jeremiah the prophet, hundreds of years after Moses, if he came about, if Moses was, was writing and explaining the need to obey the law of Moses, this new covenant, or, or the old covenant, then why would Jeremiah come and say a new covenant? And then when Jeremiah came and pre preached new covenant, what's its relationship to the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the first one? What's the relationship of these two? These would have been normal, natural questions that people would have asked. And so he's going to explain. He's saying that with all the covenants, there is the death of an animal. There is the death of something or someone. There is death. Otherwise, it's not in place. It's not enforced. There's no, if there's no death, then it's not enforced. It's not in place. It is inactive until the death occurs. Therefore, who's going to die for the new covenant? Is it going to be another animal? Well, no, because that's what ha happened with the old. It's going to have to be the person of Christ himself. Now, that is a stunning statement. For all of us, we are accustomed to believing and understanding that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But think of it in terms of the Jewish people who were longing for relief from afflictions. People always hated them. And even today, people always hate them. Why? To be relieved from that, they would want this physical kind of relief. And then think about Jews and all of us in that we all want to be peaceful, comfortable. We want to have all of our needs met. We want to be able to raise our families. We all want to do that, right? And that's right and good. We all want that. Jews wanted that, and Jews want it today. Gentiles wanted that in the past. Gentiles want that today. We all want that. So if we think of our relationship to God, would we not want God to come into the world? If he comes and invades the world, would he not invade it so that it benefits us physically? Yeah, we want that. Well, everybody wants that. But the problem is, they did not understand it or want it in relation to eternity. They put their hope in that to the exclusion of eternity. They put their hope in the physical world to the exclusion of the eternal world, the spiritual world. That's the problem. And that's the problem with the death of Christ. They did not want to imagine, they did not want to think that it was necessary for Jesus to die or for Christ Messiah to die. That's what was repulsive to them. It was repulsive to them 
that Jesus would die on the cross. And then not only is it repulsive to them at the time, or in even today among many Jews, but it's also repulsive to us. Why believe in the death of a man? Why believe in the death of the, or the blood of a man, a certain man, 2,000 years ago? If you think about it, even within Christianity, many Christians are very appalled and repulsed by that thought that we need to believe in the death of a man 2,000 years ago and believe that his blood is the source of our salvation. This is why, especially in liberal churches, they do away with all that talk altogether. They do away with it because they want nothing to do with it. It's detestable to them. It's very loathsome to them to think that we need to believe in the blood of Christ. They don't want to believe that at all. As well, the religions of the world, they also find it repugnant to believe in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They say, that's primitive. That's very backward. You, you Christians are very benighted. The Bible is a very backward book. You shouldn't believe in that. Why do you believe in that? We come into this world again and again through reincarnation. Or we're, we don't believe in the death of Christ. We just believe that if you do enough good deeds and you have 51% good deeds, you'll get to heaven and live in paradise forever and have many carnal pleasures forever and ever. That's what we believe, and that's better than believing in the blood of Christ. You people are foolish, you Christians, believing what the Bible says. That's the way many non-Christian religions look at it. That's why it's important for us to understand this chapter, because his, his focus is the blood of Christ. In chapter 9, 1, and actually all the way through 10, verse 18, his focus is believing in the true meaning of the coming of Christ, especially in the death of Christ and his shed blood for our salvation. Let's see how he argues this. Verse 15, And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant. For what reason? The reason is, In order that, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Here, he takes away one argument. In verse 15, he takes away the argument that would have been presented. Well, if Christ came now, and he did not come right when Adam sinned in the garden, and all of those years, thousands of years passed, why is it that from Adam to Christ, thousands of years passed, and how could they be saved by the blood of Christ? He's saying, no, you can't say that, because when he came, he came also for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. Jesus, when he came into the world, he not only died for the sins of his contemporaries who believed in him and all of the future generations who believe in him, but even the past generations, those under the first covenant. Remember, the first covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Moses lived 1,500 years before Jesus came into the world. 1,500 years before. So how were those people under the first covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, for 1,500 years, all of those believers, were they also saved by the death of Christ? He says, yes. He says, a death has taken place, that's the death of Christ, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. There we have it. So how could it be? 
It could be that way because they anticipated the coming of Christ. They anticipated the death of Christ. And because they anticipated the death of Christ, Jesus' death was applicable to them. And he also says of the, these people, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, when he says they are called, there are two ways of looking at this. Some interpreters think the call is a general call. You call whoever and anyone to repentance and faith in the gospel. And another way of looking at this call is the special call or the internal call, the call of the Holy Spirit. And that's, I think, the better interpretation to look at it as being called to salvation. Second um, Timothy 1.9 speaks of this eternal calling in Christ Jesus. So this is the um, effective call, the internal call, when the Holy Spirit calls us and makes us a part of Christ. I think that is the better way to look at it. Why? Because it says that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is the inheritance we are receiving? It's not the land of Canaan. It's not a piece of territory in Western Asia or on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. It's not that kind of inheritance that they're receiving when they believe in the death of Christ. It's an eternal inheritance, the inheritance of heaven. It is the city, the better country that Abraham anticipated. He was hoping in that, Hebrews chapter 11 says. He was hoping in that. And all of the patriarchs and matriarchs of the past, all the saints of the past, they were believing in the coming of the death of Christ for their eternal inheritance. Now, why is death necessary for all this? 16 and following explains. 16 to 18 explains. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Okay, in 16 and 17, he clearly tells us that a covenant or a testament or a will, and that is a more familiar term to us, our wills in force, our wills in place, our wills effective while those who enacted the will are alive. No. When, for example, parents, they will their possessions onto their children, is that in force? Does it actually take place while they are alive? No. It, they take place, those wills take place once the parents are dead. And then whatever they possess and whatever they have written in their will, then those things are bequeathed to their children and grandchildren, whomever, after their death. So a death has to take place for the will or the testament or the covenant in the terms of the Bible for this to be in place. That's his argument. Therefore, who's going to die for the new covenant? Who's going to die for this better covenant? Who is the mediator of this? This is saying it's necessary, absolutely necessary, if God establish a co establishes a covenant, a testament or a will with the people, 
Someone needs to die. It's embedded, it is a requirement in the concept. Somebody has to die. Or something has to die. Verses 18 and following. 18 to 21. The example that is an indisputable example. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. The Mosaic Covenant. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. This is what Moses did. Now, in the case of Moses... There was not a person or a human who died, but there was an animal who died in the place of the human. There was an animal who died in the place of the person. And the animal died. If the animal died, does that not itself say, why did the animal die and not a human? Why did the animal die and not the human? Should we not ask that question? We know from earlier in chapter 9, and even in chapter 10, we know in his argument in this section, he's saying the animal died only because it was a figure, only because it was a symbol, only because it was an example of the coming death of Christ. Don't put your hope in the death of the animal, but put your hope in the death of Christ. So, when the animals died, Moses made it plain. He made it clear, absolutely clear, that there was an insufficiency with all of the things that he instituted. There was an insufficiency. There was a lack in all that he instituted. Why? Why is blood there? Blood is there to cleanse, right? Blood is there to cleanse. And that's what he says in verse 22, that um, all things are cleansed with blood, almost. All things. So, blood was there as a cleansing symbol. So, if Moses instituted the death of animals as a cleansing symbol, what did he cleanse? And by that cleansing, imply something. What did he imply? He implied that there was something lacking, something insufficient, something that was not the ultimate means of salvation. He cleansed, look, notice, all the people, Right, he had spoken by uh, after Moses had spoken to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop. This the scarlet wool and the hyssop, and he used them and the water and the blood, mixing all of that and sprinkling it on who the book itself that is the law. The perfect law that he gave, he sprinkled that. Why would he do that? Because it's not obedience to the law that would save, because we can't obey it. It is Christ who saves. Not because the law itself was a bad thing or an unholy or sinful thing, but as an example to tell the people, don't trust in the law, trust in what the law says about Christ and how to know Christ. Why is it then? Further, it says that he 
not only sprinkled the book, but all the people. That's more obvious. All the people, though they are called the people of God, though they are called his chosen ones, generally speaking, because he chose them out of Egypt, he cho chose to draw them near to himself, give them the land of Canaan, he chose them in those ways, but they were wicked people. They were a sinful people. Therefore, the blood was demonstrating the fact that they needed to be sprinkled with this blood in order for forgiveness of sins to occur. And it's not the animal, remember, but they needed to understand the meaning of the sprinkling on them. Why were they sprinkled by Moses and Aaron? Why were they sprinkled like that? Because they themselves needed redemption. Verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So, this is the blood of the covenant. Moses announces this. He's quoting Exodus 24, verse 8. When he quotes Exodus 24, verse 8, when uh, the majority of these rituals were occurring in Exodus 24, he says, Moses made it clear to the people. If it wasn't clear by his actions, he makes it clear by his words. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. This is necessary, and he explained it to the people. He explained what he was doing. This is an example of Moses being not just a commander, commanding do this and, and don't do that, but he's an explainer, he's a teacher. He's giving them an explanation as to why he's doing it. This is the blood of the covenant. Which is a reminder, by the way, that none of us should practice any rituals whether it's baptism or the Lord's table or anything else that we might do in the Christian faith, we should not practice them without comprehending them, without understanding them. And if we don't understand them, then go and ask somebody, well, what do you mean? Well, what does this mean? The, both the minister, he should be explaining to the people what the meaning is of the rituals but the people, if they don't comprehend it, they should come to the minister and say, well, why do we do baptism this way? Or why do we do the Lord's table this way? They should ask. They should find out. It should not be a dead ritual. It cannot be dead or a rote ritual because when it becomes that, then there's no point. What's the point of doing, going through the motions? No point at all. But Moses, he explained. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And not only were those things cleansed by blood and water, with the scarlet wool and with the hyssop, verse 21, and in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't the tabernacle a holy place already? Yes. What, weren't all the vessels holy vessels already? Yes. They were holy, God commanded, and God commanded to make them in certain ways with specifications for all of the craftsmen to make them the way that God told them. So what was so unholy about them? It's not that they were in and of themselves bad things or unholy things or unclean things, but they served as illustrations. Served as illustrations. That's why they were sprinkled to say, don't put your hope in the tabernacle, don't put your hope in the vessels. Don't put your hope in anything that's in relation to this new ministry under the old covenant that was instituted by Moses. Don't put your hope in that because even they need to be sprinkled. And why? Because they are only symbols. They are illustrations, types, and shadows 
of the coming of Christ. So understand them properly in relation to Christ. That he needs to die, and it is only his blood that is sufficient and adequate to cover our sins. And all of this that we do, day by day in the temple and tabernacle, are only good and beneficial to us in relation to Christ. Then 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Exactly. In the law, all these things that we are talking about, in the law, blood is central to the forgiveness of sins. Blood is central to the forgiveness of sins. Almost all things are cleansed by, by blood, he says. Why? Why did he emphasize blood so much? To understand, for us to understand, that there is no forgiveness of sins without it. Now one may ask, why is it that blood is chosen? Why is it that that is so important? To answer that, Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Blood has life, right? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And because of that, God has chosen that to be the way of showing how if the blood is not on the altar, there is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no redemption of the soul unless that blood is placed on the altar. So whose blood? Is it the blood of a dead goat, of a dead sheep, of a dead bird? Whose blood will save them? And his answer, of course, is the blood of Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Which means that in the Old Testament, if the worshiper or the minister, whoever it was, whether the, the worshiper, the common man in the Old Testament, or the minister, the clergyman, if they did not have faith in the death of Christ by their offering of the sacrifice of the animals, they were not forgiven. All they did was they went through a ritual. They did not get forgiveness of sins. But if they believed in the coming of the death of Christ, then they received forgiveness of sins. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now it brings us to our point, our final point. Forgiveness of sins. Where can we go for forgiveness of sins? Should we trust in our own goodness to be forgiven of sins? Should we trust in a deed we do? Let's just say that somebody among us is a very brave man. And he thinks, he's got it in his head, that if he goes onto the battlefield for his country and he dies in battle, then he would have done a very noble thing. Of course, that is a noble thing to do, to serve and then to die on the battlefield. But he, in his mind, if he is trusting in his own death as a soldier on the battlefield to get to heaven, to get over the 50% mark of doing more good than bad in his life, if he's trusting in something like that, 
There's no forgiveness. But people do that, don't they? People do things like that. They think that if they do enough good things, or some major good thing, they'll reach heaven. But here he's saying, without shedding of blood. Whose blood? The blood of Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's no way anybody's going to be saved from his sins unless he believes in the death of Christ. Therefore, we should not put our hope in anything else but Christ. Only the death of Christ. We know we are sinners. We need to be confessing our sins. The guilt of our sins can only be forgiven. Not by anything in us. Not by anything in my fellow countrymen. Not by anything that anybody can do. My relatives, nobody. My spouse, nobody can do it. It has to be by faith in the blood of Christ. So let's put our faith in that for forgiveness of sins. Hope in nothing else except the blood of Christ. That's where forgiveness is. That's where assurance is. That's where confidence is. That's where certainty is that we are on the, our way to heaven. That's where the comfort is that we belong to Christ. That we are forgiven. That He's our Lord and Savior. That He is our friend. That he, and that the Father will answer our prayers. That the Father loves us and is concerned for us. All of these Benefits of redemption, of forgiveness of sins, are only found in Christ. In Christ and Christ alone. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.